Hello and welcome to Central's podcast. We pray your heart is touched through listening and that it helps you in your walk with Jesus. Today's message is from Pastor Kurt. Hey church, I'm Elijah Coer, and I will be reading John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. All right, good morning. Thank you, Elijah, for an excellent reading of today's scriptures. If you are uh, newer to Central, or if you haven't been here in a few weeks, I want to catch you up on where we are as a church. We're taking each Sunday morning from February through November to preach through the Gospel of John. So we're taking one section out of a chapter. We're, we're preaching pretty much from one all the way through the end, except for Easter, uh, um, uh Good Friday and Easter Sunday morning, we're going to jump ahead and then we'll come back. But as you just heard Elijah read, we have a different church family member read the portion of scripture that we are going to preach on that day. Like today, uh, we're going through verses 13 through 17. We're not going to take that entire passage, but the reason why we can have the freedom to do that is on Monday afternoons, we text out a Bible and prayer focus to the entire church family. If you're unfamiliar with that, you can go to the hub. You can click on Gospel of John link on the hub and sign up for those texts. What we're trying to do this year is really shift from having the main focus on a Sunday morning uh, to having the main focus, your daily life with Jesus. Many times people uh, spend very little time with the Lord throughout the week and they're like, this is the moment uh, throughout you know, your Sunday experience. Now we want this to be the icing on top, not the entire main meal. Your entire main meal should be your daily interaction and activity with Jesus on your own, in prayer, in worship, in the reading of the word. And then you come here and basically what I wanna do is just add on to what the Holy Spirit has already taught you through these verses. So our call of action to every person who calls Central their home is to sign up for those texts or uh, you could get it, you get it in your email as well and read through these verses, pray through the prayer focus, ask the Holy Spirit to show you what is happening. Uh, we use the Bible discovery method, what what are we discovering about God? What are we discovering about people? And how can I obey what I am learning in these verses? So as I mentioned, we're going to touch on uh, verses 13 through 17 today in a new mini series called Things Get Serious. So what we're going to do in the month, month of March is look at really four quite serious encounters that the Lord has. Today we're going to talk about the clearing 
of the temple. Next week, an extremely impactful conversation that Jesus has with a religious leader named Nicodemus. John the Baptist testifies about Jesus later on. And then the last Sunday in March, uh, we're going to talk about Jesus ministering to the woman at the well while uh, we see a two-day revival uh, follow that encounter with the woman. So Jesus' ministry is just getting ramped up in the book of John and things are getting serious. Amen? All right, let's look at uh, chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, just two of these verses that Elijah already read. It says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple courts. He found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So what you see here is Jesus and his followers making their way back to the city of God, Jerusalem. And it was for the feast or the festival of <clears throat> Passover. Now, every adult male in that time was required to go back to Jerusalem if they lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem. It was an important celebration, an important festival, because all the Jewish people were coming together to remember that day of Passover, the very first Passover, when the Israelites were delivered out of slavery from Egypt. If you know the story, they sacrificed a lamb, they ate it as a family, they used some of the blood, they put it onto the doorpost, and the, the death angel passed over, and the Lord protected them. Them, and then they were delivered that next morning. So year after year after year, approximately in mid-April, uh, uh, potentially over 2 million Jews would converge on this city to celebrate this most important festival. Now in this verse 14, we see two things happening. We see the selling of cattle, sheep, and doves, and we see others sitting at tables exchanging money. So what would happen with these animals is uh, the, 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 the pilgrims that would be making their way back to Jerusalem, they would oftentimes give another offering to the Lord in addition to the Passover sacrifice. So they might offer doves or they might offer another sheep and it might be in the form of a thank offering to the Lord saying, thank you, Lord, for getting me through this journey safely to Jerusalem. The Old Testament talks about several of the offerings. I just want you to know is that they would make these offerings with animals. How many of you know it would not be easy to pull a cattle or to carry a sheep or to keep a dove uh, uh, nice and safe over a 15 mile walking journey, right? It would not be convenient at all. So it was actually established in the law of God. It was understood in that time that people that were making this pilgrimage could literally purchase an animal and then make the sacrifice to the Lord. It was just a very practical way they could do this. Now, they could purchase the animal outside the temple or they could come inside the temple. And this is where the problem began. Is inside the temple courts, there were evaluators that would literally look at the animal to make sure it was able to be sacrificed. Now, in those days, it had to be a perfect animal without spot, without blemish. Well, what they found out after time and years and years and years is these individuals would actually charge a fee to evaluate your animal sacrifice. And what they found out over all these years is if they were purchased outside, these individuals would find fault with every single animal. So now what are the, the Jews required to do? They're forced to buy animals inside the temple courts because they know it won't pass the assessment. Well, there's estimates that 
these charges that the religious officials were putting on people these days were exorbitant. In fact, two doves that could be offered to the Lord could be 15 times more expensive than in the marketplace outside. Now you starting to catch why Jesus was upset. He wasn't upset because they were selling the animals. That was a, a proper process to make a holy offering to the Lord. Why he was angry in this moment is because it was extortion. It was literally blackmail. It was greed. It was selfishness. And what Jesus had identified is this. Sin has entered the temple of God. And this is what was happening with the purchasing of these animals. Now let's take these coins. There were individuals that were exchanging and selling coins. So back in the day, every man, 19 years and older, had to pay what was called a temple tax. That temple tax was used with a coin called a shekel, and the temple tax was a half of a shekel. In those days, it was about two days wages. Well, because people were spread out over the entire region now, there were hundreds of different currencies. I mean, each little town and village started to produce their own currency from time to time. Well, in the temple, you were allowed to either have a Galilean shekel or a sanctuary shekel. They were only Jewish coins that were allowed. So now you have these people, they're traveling at least 15 miles, maybe 30, maybe 50, a couple days journey. They're buying their animals here and they have their hometown currency. So what these individuals in the temple courts would allow you to do is you can exchange it. The problem was they had extremely high commissions. Now, again, in the law those days, they could charge a small commission for the exchange of it. People understood this is what it was to be given to the temple so the temple could operate, make the sacrifices. The priests could, uh, could continue to minister in that way. But they were charged extremely high commissions. And then if you brought a coin that represented too much value that had to be then uh, limited to just a half a shekel, you were charged yet another fee. And Jesus sees this happening and he knows once again, this is another sign of deception, greed, literally wickedness and evil that has entered the temple of God. These activities rightfully infuriated Jesus. When we see the anger of the Lord in this situation, do not be confused. This was not a sinful action. This was a holy indignation against sin that had entered the temple of God. And I want to tell you, God is just as serious about sin being in the temple as he was thousands of years ago. Can you say amen? And things are just a little bit more serious. Wait, doesn't Pastor Kurt want me to feel good today? Yeah, I want you to feel good by cleaning the temple. It'll be the best feeling in the world. We sing the joy of the Lord is our strength. And yet when you're bound by things, it's impossible to have joy. Jesus. Yeah. So we invite you even right now to come and have your way. We don't wait till the end of the sermon. We don't wait till the altar call. Jesus, we open our hearts to you, we open our minds to you, and we invite you to come and cleanse the temple of God. We recognize in these moments, sin destroys. 
The devil himself uses sin to kill us, to steal from us, to destroy our lives and our families, our finances and the purpose you've given in our lives. So Father, today I pray that you would heighten the awareness of the destructiveness of sin until we are passionately pursuing the cleansing of our own temple. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we have these animals being sold at you know, 15 times the rate they would go in the marketplace. We have the fees and the commissions being earned. Uh, one, one resource that I read said that there was a, an invasion in the temple. It wasn't the complete takeover, but where there was theft in the temple. And that all of the coins and all of the money that was taken would equate to several million dollars in today's money. We're talking now thousands of years ago. So there was so much greed found in uh, what was happening all in the name of religion. This was a perversion to the largest extent and Jesus was about to deal with it. Now, before I go on to verses 15 through 17, it's important to know that the cleansing of the temple is actually found in all four gospels. There's very few situations that are found in all four, but this one is. Now, there's two belief systems that I've read. And the first is this, that Jesus actually cleansed the temple two different times because this is written very early on in John, in John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke put it very late. In fact, it's right after the triumphal entry. Uh, they're saying Hosanna, they're laying the palm branches down. A week later, he is crucified on the cross. We know Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they write chronologically. So we know they're saying this happened the last week of his life. John does not necessarily write chronologically. So some believe that there were two specific uh, uh, cleansing of the temples. Those who believe that there was only one would say this. If Jesus literally cleansed the temple this early in his ministry, the target would have been on him. His ministry would have been too public and he would have been killed before God's time for him to go on the cross. So most theologians believe that though John talks about it early in his book, that it's the same instance as later on in his ministry. John was not worried about chronology. John was worried about proving to the Jewish and non-Jewish people, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the one with the authority, not the religious systems of that day. So what I want to do is take into account what John says and then what some of the other gospels say as well. And because the other three say pretty similar things within each other, I'm just going to touch on Matthew's. But let's get to verses 15 through 17 in John chapter 2. It says, so he made a whip out of cords and he drove all the temple court, uh, he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he says, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And that comes from Psalm 69, verse 9. Now in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, again, mostly identical wording. You'll see the references up there if you want to look them up later. I just want to read Matthew 21's to you. It says, Jesus entered the temple courts and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. 
So if we take Matthews and John's, there's some similarities here. Jesus enters the temple courts in both of these. He drives everything, all the animals and the people who were operating in sin out, and he overturned the tables. Specific to John, it mentions that he actually makes a whip to do the cleansing in the temple. And he also says what they should stop doing in the book of John, which is stop turning my father's house into a market. Now in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, no whip is mentioned, but he does say that, that Jesus overturns tables, but he also overturns the benches where the individuals were selling the doves. And then Jesus doesn't say, stop doing this. He actually says what, they sh- what it should be. He says, my father's house will be called a house of prayer, but you all have c- created this den of thieves. I really don't mind if these were two completely different instances or one. Jesus' words are always important and his heart is always the same, right? He doesn't want perversion in the house of God. Can you say amen? So I'll take both of these and say, listen, Jesus said it. He was flipping tables. He was mad. We should pay attention. So this is what he does. He makes a whip out of cords and he drives out all from the temple courts. I want to propose to you that Jesus did not do this calmly. I believe sometimes like the paintings we see of like this, you know, weak looking meek, like, you know, the the blue sash, blue eyes, blonde hair. He was a Jew. He didn't have blonde hair and blue eyes, folks. Anyway, he's just like, I honestly don't think Jesus did that. I don't think he walked in whipping his hand, shoulders rolled over, head down. Hey guys, can I? Can I give you a suggestion? Can you please stop cheating my people? I would really like them to worship purely and wholly. Absolutely not. Jesus was angry. He was filled with a holy indignation, a holy anger, and yet did not sin in that moment. I want you to see what scripture says. It says Jesus made this whip which means he didn't go and find some guy who was driving cattle down the road and take the whip quickly and come in in some emotional outburst and said, I'm really mad, and starts flipping out. He didn't go to the whip in the sword store and buy it really quick and then run into the temple in a fit of rage. He actually thoughtfully, think about that word now, he thoughtfully and intentionally calculated how he was going to drive out sin from the temple of God. You picture Jesus holding a lamb. Today, you should picture Jesus sitting there, fully connected with the Father. See, anger to us means something so distorted than what it could represent in the Bible. So Jesus has a holy anger, and he's sitting there, and he's taking these ropes But this didn't take 60 seconds, folks. He was calculated in the cleansing of the temple. So Jesus has anger in his heart, a holy anger. He's connected with the Father. He says, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what I hear the Father saying. So Jesus must have saw the Father making a whip. He must have knew his father was serious about cleansing the sin from or the temple from perversion. So he sits there and he makes this whip and he enters into the courts and he starts throwing this whip around to get the animals out of the way. Didn't say that he hit anybody, but I'm saying if Jesus was swinging, I don't know if everybody stayed out of the way. 
Just saying. I'm not saying the Bible says that, folks. So he starts swinging this whip. He starts pushing and using the whip to push all the coins and all the paraphernalia and the bags and the ledgers and all these things off. And he doesn't stop there. Like the tables are cleaned off now. It says he's pushing these things off. And he takes these tables, whip in his hand, and he flips them over. And in the other translation, it says he wasn't done there. He actually flipped the benches over as well. There was a complete cleansing that Jesus wanted to see in that day. So much so that he turned these tables over. What's that represent? That nothing should ever be put back on them in that way. If he pushed them off, people would have probably came, picked stuff up and put it back on like we do in our lives, don't we? But he was making sure every single thing is about to get turned over. He wants to make his stance clear. So if you've been following along since Monday, we've been praying this prayer. It's been our prayer focus. Father, that we would have the same zeal that Jesus has for the things of your kingdom. I will tell you personally, I have room to grow. I have room to grow in my my life until I can say I have that same indignation, that same hatred towards sin that Jesus had. It's a zeal, it's a passion, but it's not a zeal and a passion against sin. It's a zeal and a passion toward the Lord. And you realize how holy he is. You realize how majestic he is. You realize how much he loves you and how much sin destroys you and your friends and your family around you. And then something rises up to say, I want that same zeal. And then we fail and the devil's like, see, that doesn't work. And you say, no, hold on, there's grace here. I am in process of growing into the image of Jesus. So that's been our prayer this week, that the Lord would give us the zeal that Jesus has for the things of his kingdom. Last July, when we had no carpet down here, we wrote hundreds of prayer requests, declarations, prophetic words, both on the floor and on the front of the stage before it was covered. And we called the church to prayer for four weeks, Monday mornings and Wednesday nights. And I don't remember if it was the first Wednesday night or the second Wednesday night where we were meeting to pray. I was somewhere in the center. Remember those bluish green pews that we had? I was sitting in one of those pews. And Dana Mansberger, our media director, began to pray. And she said something that has stuck in my heart and I review it often with the Lord. She made a simple request to the Lord. She said, Lord, may sin become disgusting to us in this house. And it hit my heart. And it's not just like, hey, can we not like sin, Lord? Can we avoid sin? Can we stay away from sin? It was that word disgusting. And I'm like, this is what sin is to the Father. This is what sin is to Jesus the Son and to the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin. Sin is disgusting. Why? Because it's a part of the enemy's plan to steal, kill, and destroy. So this is my desire, is that sin would become disgusting to me as much as it disgusted Jesus on that day when he overturned tables. So we see this angry Jesus, we see him whipping animals and turning over tables and we're like, did he just lose control? Because my Jesus was supposed to be a sinless Jesus. 
Well, the Bible says, in your anger, do not sin. So is anger in itself sinful? No. Is 99% of the anger that we see in culture sinful? Yes. Why? Because it's rooted in our selfish flesh. His anger was out of love for the Father and out of love for the people of God who were being deceived and perverted. You see this? He wasn't necessarily mad at the people. He was angry that his beloved were being deceived. You know what happens when we're angry? We're angry because we're not in control. You know, most anger is actually rooted in a fear of not being able to be in control. So we see this from the youngest of age, right? A kid wants another person's toy. Mom and dad says, no, you can't have this toy or it's bedtime or whatever. And the kid isn't in control of their own choices. What do they do? It's a temper tantrum. And I want this and I want that. Parents don't laugh. We do the same thing, right? We want our kids to do something, but we realize God didn't create us to control our kids. Lead them, guide them, discipline them, yes. But we literally cannot control them. So what? We want our kids to do something. Our kids don't do something. What do we do? We throw a temper tantrum. Why won't you do that? Bosses, you do that with your employees. Employees, you do that with your bosses. Neighbors, you do that to each other. Family members, right? Most of our anger is out of the flesh. It's sinful. It's, I'm not getting what I want. So I'm going to yell at you louder. My blood pressure is going to go out of control. A fit of rage is sin. Holy indignation is not. And Jesus had a holy anger against perversion in the temple, and he did not sin. So how do we get to that point? Just ask yourself, when I'm getting angry, what's my target? If my target is that person who won't do what I want, it's sin. If your target is the sin and you're loving that person, if your target is the enemy, a demonic force, whatever, and it's not another person, then I would say you're walking in a holy anger that restoration, refinement are all possible. You guys with me? A couple of you. I like this. Rewatch this. This is on live stream. You can watch it again. So Jesus makes these two comments, all talking about his father's house. He says, get out, get these out of here. Talking to those who were selling doves. I believe that he's talking about everybody. If you're doing something that is immoral, get out of here. No more is my father's house going to be a market. And then he also says, my house will be called a house of prayer. You're making it a den of robbers. So it's not that like Jesus didn't like the doves when he was like, get these out of here. He's saying, get all of their immorality away. Everything that has perverted what should be pure and holy, get it out now. And I like what Jesus is doing. If you take these two statements and you can let scripture interpret scripture. So if we're taking two specific statements of Jesus, he's saying one thing is everything that does not belong in the temple must get flipped over and cleaned out. We know that's Jesus' will, okay? But he's also saying what should come in. He's saying it should not be this. What it should be is a house of prayer. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying when those people are coming in, their words were meant to be a pure and holy offering to the Lord. And when they made those sacrifices, they weren't to walk away poor, ripped off and blackmailed. They were meant to give that offering to the Lord, that sacrifice to the Lord, and it would come up as a sweet aroma to the Lord. 
And their prayers and their worships and everything that they did was to be pure and holy unto the Lord. And it was perverted because of people's activities and actions. And Jesus needed it to change. So he said, my house, my house, my father's house will be a house of prayer. And I know that he's not just talking about that temple because it's no longer there. I know he's talking about us, but as a church family, we are committed to becoming a house of prayer. Our weekly prayer meetings on Mondays and Wednesdays and our monthly overflow worship gatherings, these aren't like a fad. These aren't like, hey, we're gonna check it out and see if people come or not. No, there might be very few people there at days, but we understand without prayer, we're done. We're done. We'll be left up to our own plans and our own ministry approaches and our own programs and they might work like a flash in the pan, but it's not going to be sustained move of the Holy Spirit. So we are committed to becoming a house of prayer and we believe that the Lord will move among our prayers. Amen? So Jesus, he's in the temple. He's talking about the temple. He's saying, my house. So he's literally talking just about, in context, he's talking about this building called the temple. Because why? That's where the presence of God was, in the most holy place. That's where he dwelt. And even his disciples remembered, as Jesus is doing all these things, he says, zeal for your house, talking about the temple, will consume me. Now that's a quote from Psalm 69, from the Old Testament, so we know when he's talking about the house of God, he's talking about the temple. However, that's old covenant. In the new covenant, God's presence is not bound by brick and mortar. He's not in a room called the most holy place. He lives within us. God is broken out from behind the veil, and now we have become the temple of God. So now it gets personal. Now you're not like, yeah, I hope Jesus comes in central and flips that table and, and this and this. And I saw somebody talking behind my back and I saw this. Hold on. You're the temple. You're the temple of God. I'm the temple of God. And Jesus is flipping some tables. Now it becomes very personal. How are we to deal with this? So I don't think Jesus would come and like destroy our cafe if we charge a buck 50 for a coffee. I don't really think that's what he's talking about. I don't think if we sell a t-shirt for 10 bucks, he's like gonna come and whip it off the shelf. It's not because things were being exchanged in the temple. It was perversion. It was stealing the holiness and the purity away from their worship. And Jesus needed it to be gone. First Corinthians chapter three, 16 and 17. This is Paul talking to believers. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Every time you see the word you in those two verses, it's plural. So what he's saying is you together. He's talking to an entire city of believers. He's saying all of you together are the temple of God. And I love this phrase here. If we just would catch this, maybe we would have disgust towards sin as Jesus did. 
He says, God's temple is sacred. God's temple is sacred. God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. We realize, wow, this isn't just about me anymore. It's very deeply personal to me because the spirit dwells within me, but my actions, my behavior, my beliefs, my faith, my deliverance, my freedom actually affects the rest of the temple. Right? And now we realize, oh man, my sin, my unrepented sin will drastically and negatively affect those closest to me. Why? Because they're a part of God's temple. Right? And we can get this revelation that we are sacred to God. Take the holiness that you would feel if you walked into the temple in Jerusalem and now apply that to how God looks at you. And I believe sin will become more disgusting to us. It's interesting when you put it in modern day terms, not one of us would come to this altar. We consider this a holy place. People come to give their lives to Jesus, to receive prayer, for healing, for marriages to be restored. So though there's nothing necessarily holy about this airspace, we consider this a holy place, right? And I don't think anybody in this room respecting this place would ever come in here with their tax forms, because that's due soon, and cheat on their taxes right here at this altar space. I don't think anybody in here would flip open social media and just scroll and scroll and scroll until jealousy burned in your heart in this place. And I don't think anybody would bring their laptop down and set it right here and pull up some pornographic websites and just stare at it right here. And I don't think anybody would get their shot glasses out and line them up right here and just start taking them. You'd say, oh my goodness, Pastor Kurt, that's completely disgusting. Until you realize it's not about this physical space. And you realize when you're at home, when you're at work, when you're by yourself, dark into the night, the sacred temple is within you. The Holy Spirit is within you. And in the most beautiful way, you can't get away from his presence. Now, if you say you can't get away from God, then it feels like he's like, ah, right? Like trying to destroy you. Not at all. He wants to destroy the sin in you because you've been created with so much more value, right? You've been created with a divine purpose. We are a sacred temple. So the next time you find yourself caught in something, like even a little white lie, next time you raise your voice at your spouse and you know it's not to prove a point, I mean, it's literally a selfish anger. Picture yourself at this altar. You're like, I would never do that here. Well, you don't ever have to do that somewhere else. There's grace when you fail, but let's get the temple as clean as possible so our failures are a lot less in between. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. Come on, not only are we a sacred temple now, we're not our own. We're not giving up to our own devices, our own plans and our own strategies. You were bought with a price. And because you were bought with a price, therefore we can honor God with our bodies, which are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Come on. If we can't grasp the fact that we are a sacred temple unto God, then realize the blood of Jesus 
bought you so you could be free. And he didn't bring you into a place of freedom so you could live in sin. He actually brought you into a place of freedom so you could live free from sin, empowered to overcome sin, to stay away from temptation, to identify what's out of place in my life. You don't go into a place of condemnation and shame. You say, all right, Jesus, I've recognized this by your Holy Spirit. I can't do it. Will you do it for me? And I believe Jesus will say yes and amen. I believe he'll get out his modern day whip, which is called the Holy Spirit. And I believe he'll start flipping tables and stuff's gonna go everywhere and there'll be trash that's in your life that's everywhere. He says, now let's clean it up together. Let's clean it up together. And listen to me. When Jesus turned those tables over, he didn't say you have 48 hours to clean this up. He didn't say, take the next couple months, think about it. And when somebody that loves you asks you about it, say, I'm working on it. I'm praying about it. Jesus didn't say that. He did not say that. He started flipping tables and he expected the junk to be gone now. And the beautiful thing is, is we have the Holy Spirit in us to help us. So I personally believe that Jesus is still in the business of flipping tables. Absolutely, absolutely. It just happens in the depths of our heart, not out in public places. A speaker at a recent conference that we were at said something similar to this. What tables has Jesus flipped over that you are trying to place right side up again? If he has flipped them all, if he has flipped them over, they need to stay that way and the items need removed from the temple. Come on. So we can ask Jesus, what are you flipping over in our lives? And now it's not a guilt thing, it's not a shame thing at all. It's Jesus, if these tables don't get flipped over in my heart, I will destroy myself. Like I literally will go the wrong way or at least, which is still horrible, not live up to my God-given potential, right? You say, well, it's it's something small. I'm not like addicted to something or whatever. No, no, listen, if there's anything that needs flipped over and cleansed, it, it will slow your progression down in your relationship with the Lord, right? So you have this loving father who created you with divine purpose. You have this son who paid for you with the best price ever through his blood. And now something has been flipped over in your life and in your heart and you see it laying on the floor. We're gonna pray about it. We'll talk about it. We'll consider it. Or it's like, Jesus, let's get the dust buster out and let's clean this garbage up now. That's what I believe the Lord wants to do. Like I believe the Lord's asking us as a local congregation, like when is the time going to come when we come into this room knowing together we're the temple and we're not interested in feeling good. We're not interested in getting something out of it. We're interested in in coming into contact with the living God. And when we do come in contact, we get stripped of everything that doesn't belong. And once we're stripped, we become the house of prayer. We don't wait until Kurt schedules another prayer meeting. You're the temple. So you become an individual house of prayer filled with his love, filled with his spirit, filled with his joy. Why? Because you let him flip tables and you clean stuff up. Why don't we stand this time? I want to just rest in his presence because I know we have busy schedules and busy days. 
So I want a moment in time where we can ask Jesus, what tables have you already flipped over? Which ones over the last 10, 15 years do I keep setting up, right? Jesus flips one over, we wait till he leaves the room. He doesn't really leave the room. We wait till he leaves the room and we start putting stuff back up on the table. Be honest with yourself and the Lord. He'll show you. There's so much grace in this moment if you just let him show you. So much grace, no condemnation. So much grace to just clean up what he's already flipped over. So we're gonna rest in his presence. We're gonna ask Jesus what table he's flipping over. If you sense in your heart, like you can absolutely sense there's a stirring in your spirit or in your heart, I will invite you down to the altar with me. We're not, we're not even calling altar workers. It's between you and the Lord. And if you hear, feel that stirring, it doesn't mean you have sin issues. It means the Lord's taking you to a greater place of surrender. It's saying, listen, I love the joy part, but I want to enter into brokenness. I want God to crush me in the spirit first and rebuild me back to who he's called me to be. Brokenness is a beautiful thing when it happens in the presence of God. So if you're sensing that upon you today, you're invited to come down. If not, you stay there. I want you to ask the question, Jesus, what tables have you already flipped over and how can we clean it up in Jesus' name? The soil I now 
of this event of when, what happened then when Jesus breathed his last and said it is finished when he did that the, the veil in the temple tore signifying that the presence of God was no longer bound by one place but was available to all people through the blood of Jesus so what happened in that moment we could say in layman's terms is the spirit broke out of that holy of holies place but I'm telling you what the Lord showed me while I was praying is tables have to be flipped before the spirit breaks out. See, two weeks ago when I talk about Asbury Revival and the Holy Spirit moving of colleges, that, that gets a roar, that gets a clap, right? That gets a cheer, that makes us feel so good. But what we don't realize is that was probably led up to years of persistent prayer, brokenness, contrite hearts, being poor in the spirit in the presence of God. There is no accident that Jesus had to clear the temple of perversion and sin before his presence broke out. So for as excited as we might be to pursue a call, a, a, a move of the Holy Spirit, a revival, if you would use those words, an outpouring of his spirit, I'm telling you, he has to flip tables first. He has to do it first. We gotta clean the temple. Jesus, we invite you to clean our temples and we say Lord with the help of your Holy Spirit we will take action 
we will turn our whatever, computers, phones off. We'll, we'll avoid talking to somebody for a while. We'll change the way we drive to work or who we talk to, God. We'll change our habits. If you would just show us what tables you flipped over. Just show us what tables are you flipping. God, we commit to you. As your Holy Spirit helps us, we want our temples clean. We want to be disgusted by any sin that you're pointing out in our lives. We want to be a clean vessel to be used for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit. We want new wineskins to hold what your Spirit is doing. So God, I pray, I invite you to visit the people of Central in our own private time and flip over the tables. Come on, get your Holy Spirit whip out, Jesus, and remove anything that doesn't belong. And let us walk in the fullness of the purpose that you have for us. We love you. We recognize how much you love us and how much sin will destroy us. Yes, even little ones, Lord. We recognize that today. We recognize that today. Give us the zeal that Jesus had for the things of God and give us a disgust towards sin like never before. And we believe that that form of repentance will usher in the next outpouring of your spirit upon the people here in Houston, Pennsylvania. We love you. We look forward, not with sadness or fear. We look forward to you flipping the tables with joy because we know freedom is on its way. We love you for taking the time to give us attention, Lord, in our own personal lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe and go visit centralconnect.org for more information and media.